from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Parivash Rohani on October 24, 2016. Parivash left Iran in 1979, coincident with the inauguration of the Islamic Revolution in that country. Parivash describes how difficult it was for her to live in her country as a Baha'i. What pushed her over the edge to leave was the burning down of her family home by arsonists and not being allowed to attend university. She returned to Iran 30 years later and was amazed at how much the country had changed in those 30 years. One of her missions while there was to find out how the Baha'is are doing under the oppression of the current regime. She committed herself to present to folks here in the States the situation of the Baha'is in Iran. I met Parivash when she was in my area making this presentation. I started the interview by asking Parivash to describe her life growing up in Iran. I grew up in a little town in the northeast of Iran in the province of Khorasan. The name of the town was Buchan. My father was in army, so he usually was stationed in little town in Iran. And we end up being in Buchan, very fanatical kind of city. We actually had a rough time growing up in that little town because, of course, of our affiliation with the Baha'i faith. We had a harder time in that town. In the school, we were discriminated against. We when we went shopping or we were playing outside, we really had a hard time. So growing up was not easy in that province. And can you give me some examples of how you personally experienced prejudice growing up? I was probably six, seven years old because that's the time you go to a school and you're in a company of other kids and then you realize that this is very different than when you are at home growing up. Now your reality is very different. And I remember, you know, when we used to walk to a school, they would throw a stone at us or curse us or pull our hair or pull our backpack or tear our books. You know, all kinds of discrimination just because we, our affiliation with our religion was very different than uh, the other student in that little town. What about the teachers and the school itself? Did they display prejudice as well? Of course. You know, it was very customary that in the beginning of year, when the teacher come to the classroom, really one of the questions that they pose to the student is, who are not Muslim have to stand up and they introduce themselves and say to what religion they belong. So it was very normal that you go to a school and the teacher would come and that would be what she or he would be asking. 
And as soon as they find out that you belong to Baha'i faith, you know, the discrimination would start. Because, of course, if you were Christian, Jew, or Zoroastrian, you didn't really deal with a lot of discrimination. But if you were a Baha'i, of course, then all kinds of hardship you had to go through because they believe that you have gone astray and you're infidel and their responsibility is to really bring you to a straight path. You know, it was no different. You know, we had the discrimination that a student posed upon us and then the teachers. It was all the same. <laughs> so you grew up as a Baha'i. What about your parents? Did they grow up as Baha'is as well? That's right. My parents were Baha'is and their parents were as well. But my great-grandfather was someone who himself declared and became a Baha'i. But my own grandfather and my parents, they were all Baha'is. You know, one of the principles of the Baha'i faith is the independent investigation of truth. So as you were growing up, you were basically a child of your parents' religion. When was it, can you remember, when the Baha'i faith was your religion and not so much the religion of your parents? Probably around when I was 15, 16 years old. We moved many times from one town to another, so it was very hard to really belong somewhere. And then when my father retired, they decided to go to Shiraz. And once we were in Shiraz, it was a big Baha'i community, lots of activity, a large group of young people my age and older that they were doing a lot of service into the community. And I think when I look back, probably those years were the years that I was confirmed in the faith because we had this accompaniment with a lot of activity. You know, there were a lot of young people my age who wanted to do the same thing, and they were all excited about doing service, providing different activities in the community. I think those were the years that I was truly confirmed in the faith. At what point did you leave Iran? I left Iran in 1979, so it was the beginning of revolution, there was lots of turmoil happening all over Iran, and, uh, you know, we lived at the time in Shiraz. In Shiraz in 1979, uh, my house was burned down. Actually, my house was not the only Baha'i home that was burned down. There were more than 500 Baha'i homes that were burned down to the ground. At that point, I was 18 and I was the oldest and the only girl in my family. My parents being scared for my safety and of course being a girl, young girl, it was much harder to be protected. So. At that point, we relocated to another city, actually the same day after my house was burned down, we all moved to another city where my uncle and aunt had homes and apartment building. So we moved there and soon after, actually, 
probably a few months after I left Iran. And why was that? One of the reasons was because, you know, my parents were really worried about me and I was thinking now they have lost everything they owned and they are worried about so many things. I didn't want to add to their worries. And although I really had no desire to leave Iran, I decided for their sake, I need to leave. And then, of course, I knew that at Baha'i, we are not allowed to go to university. And uh, I really didn't see the reason that I have to stay in Iran. So I left Iran with two of my cousins who also were university students at that point, and they were expelled from university. So three of us left Iran to India. So did you have to, like, escape? You know, it was kind of escape, but not really. It's a little confusing because I left Iran, but I didn't escape like without passport or without proper document. Because when we left Iran, it was the time that Shah just left and Khomeini came to the country. So really there was not a strict rule and regulation in Iran at that point. So we got a student visa, and with the student visa, we went to India. So we actually flew to India. It wasn't that we escaped through the borders or we walked or nothing as such. We just legally crossed the border. And then at that point, you sought asylum. Actually, when we went there, we had a student visa for a few years because we were allowed to study there. So we studied there and we were not even thinking about asylum because we were thinking that we are going to go back to Iran. Like when we left Iran, we didn't leave Iran with the purpose of leaving it for good. We just left Iran because we thought, okay, right now there are some commotion and, you know, unrest is happening in the country. So we'll go to India for a few months. And then when everything settles down, we go back. Actually, when we left, that was the impression that people in Iran, they most of them had. Nobody really thought that this revolution that has happened is going to last long. So that was the reason we chose India, thinking the proximity of India to Iran, so the thing get better and we go back. And of course, you know, after our student visa expired, the embassy of Iran didn't renew our passport. They wanted us to recant our faith and convert to Islam and then write an article in the paper in India and in Iran stating that we have converted to Islam, and then they would renew our passport. And of course, we didn't want to do that. We became stateless, so we couldn't stay in India without proper document. We couldn't travel anywhere. So we became refugees under United Nations at that point. And so were you given options at that point by the UN once you had reached that refugee status? Yes, they gave us an option. We could go either to Canada, 
US or Australia. Of course, for us, Australia was out of question because most of our relatives were either in Canada or US. And actually, my husband's family uh, was, was in Canada. We actually tried to apply for Canada, but at that point, the CODA for Canada was done and they wouldn't accept any more refugees to go to Canada. And we decided we come to U.S. because like at the time my husband was doing his Ph.D. and he was writing his final papers for his Ph.D. research. But he got really afraid, thinking that if we don't apply and go somewhere, maybe all the borders would be closed and we wouldn't have any option. Especially because at that time I had my daughter who was only a year and a half and we were worried about her. So we wanted a better life for her. So we decided not to wait for Canada, because I mean, every year they would have different coda. We decided, no, we are not going to wait for that. Uh, we're just going to apply to come to U.S. Except for recently, you had not been back to Iran? That's right. I didn't go to Iran almost for 30 years. And then recently, because of my mother's condition, I had to go back to Iran. And I guess that was in 2016, right? Actually, I went back, yes, this year. But the first time I went, it was 2014. Okay. After 30 years, yeah. And so what had you noticed had changed when you returned 30 years later? Yes, many things have changed, you know, was really different. I didn't expect to be surprised by changes, but I was. You know, the culture has changed, the language has gone through because, of course, of the technology and all of the things that have happened. They had to bring words to match the technology and also because they're trying to purify the Persian language of other languages like French and uh, Arabic. So many words have been replaced with new that for me, it was very hard to understand or even sometimes communicate because I didn't know, for example, what they call the computer or mobile phone or many things that are new technology. I didn't know how to say it in Persian. And of course, you know, when I left Iran, Iran was not the Iran of today. People were free. I didn't wear any veil. I didn't need to cover my head. And then I go back and everything has changed. Another thing was the fact that I didn't even go to a place that I was familiar with. I went to a new city, new home that I had no memory from. It was really kind of... uh, sad that I couldn't connect with anything in my environment because nothing seemed familiar and I didn't have memory of anything that existed in the new town that my parents were living. So a lot of changes in many levels. 
I'm surprised that they wanted to pure the Persian language from Arabic. Don't the uh, clergy in Iran consider Arabic a, a holy language? They do. It is not at the government level, but at many other levels that people, you know, day-to-day people, don't really want to associate with that kind of culture. I'm Iranian. If you go to Iran, I was so shocked. Like the names, all the names are very new names, something that I never heard before. Like this new generation, none of their name is a religious name. These are names of old, old Persian, you know, like from Zoroastrian time. You know, so people are actually regressing, kind of going back to what it it meant to be Iranian that had nothing to do with the religion, nothing to do with Arab culture. You know, it's just they are trying to revolutionize and forget about that, about (laughs) any... Yeah, it's kind of an interesting dichotomy because the fundamentalist Muslim clerics are imposing a very strict Quranic code to the populace, yet at the same time they are purifying the Persian culture that has Arabic influences. It is really mostly grassroots. The government doesn't want the Iranian to celebrate like holidays that came down from the Zoroastrian religion like Nowruz, like many, many, many other holidays. And the Iranian are paying so much attention to those kind of holidays. Like they make such a big deal out of it. When I was in Iran growing up, I mean, it was important, but it wasn't important to this point. Now it has become commercialized. Now every single Iranian is paying so much attention to observe all of those holidays. Whether they were small or big, they make a big deal out of it, just to show that they are resisting and they don't accept what the government is trying to do. And the government's not cracking down? No, you know, sometimes they give people a hard time, but... You know, this is now more than they can handle. Now, it is majority of people are trying to revolt by the way they dress, by the way they observe holidays. So it's not only 10, 15 people that they can arrest or put in prison. Now, it's majority of people are doing that. And it is harder for anybody to track down this population who are observing the holidays or celebrating some of the significant uh, holidays in Iran. Was it dangerous for you to travel back to Iran as a Baha'i? You know, I really contemplated on going to Iran because of that reason. That's why I never went back to Iran, because my kids were little and I was little concerned if I go, something happened. Yes, there is always that danger because there is no rhyme and reason when they are going to be strict, when they are going to give you a hard time. 
there is no regulation that you can say, okay, if I do this, I get arrested. You know, it's just randomly, they sometimes do things. So I really didn't have much choice. The kids are all there and my mom wasn't feeling good. So I just thought I take a risk. I take a chance. And I didn't really deal with a lot of problems when I went. Oh, that's good. Now, how long were you there that first time? About three months. And when you came back, you prepared a presentation that you shared with folks about your observations. Could you tell us about that presentation? Sure. You know, when I decided to go to Iran, I knew that if I go as an Iranian, I definitely would be very disappointed because, of course, the culture has changed. I have missed so much of my life outside of Iran that it would be really hard to go back as an Iranian when you are away from the culture and day-to-day life. So I decided to go as a Baha'i pilgrim because, of course, Baha'i faith started 170 years ago in Iran. So I was thinking I go back to Iran as a Baha'i pilgrim, not even as Iranian pilgrim, because I wanted to take this trip as something really a spiritual journey at the same time. When I went to Iran, I realized that many of the holy places that were dear to the Baha'i community were demolished. They were all demolished after revolution. So there was no holy places for me to visit because I was thinking I would be a Baha'i pilgrim. But when I met the Baha'is, the first few times that I met the Baha'is, I realized, oh my God, their home is like a pilgrimage space because they are all suffering. They have given up so much of their comfort, their material means. They are under so much stress and pressure And still they are so steadfast and they are holding to this covenant of this faith. So I then decided that it would be good for me to, when I meet the Baha'is and hear their stories, I collect them and give it as a gift to my American community because I knew the American Baha'is would probably, under these circumstances, would never get a chance to go to Iran and witness what I was witnessing. And I thought this would be a good gift. So when I came back from Iran, that's what I did. I put all of these stories and what I heard from the prisoners, their families, I put them together as a PowerPoint presentation and actually my purpose was to just do it once. But when I presented the first time, my husband, after my presentation, said to me, you know, you need to do this more than once. And I even help you organize the PowerPoint um, to be better presentation and actually with his help I was able to get it more organized. I have traveled with the presentation actually even outside of US 
so it it has been really very uh, inspirational for me and uh, very confirming that these stories are effective and uh, it uh, really put life in perspective in so many levels. Would you be able to retell for us one of the stories that you brought back with you that impressed you the most? I think probably one of the stories that impressed me the most was the story of Samin Ehsani, a young girl who in Iran used to help with Afghani population. You know, in Iran, there are many Afghanis who migrate or become refugee kind of in Iran, which I don't understand how anybody really <laughs> want to live under <laughs> such circumstances in Iran, but they do. Probably they have it worse than they have it in Iran. You know, these Afghanis come to Iran, they are not really treated as Iranian. It's just very different than when, for example, when I came to U.S., I had the same respect, same right of any other citizen in U.S. And as long as I'm an obedient, law-abiding citizen, I enjoy the same rights. But in Iran, it's not the same. So these refugees come to Iran from Afghanistan, and some of them even they don't have right to go to a school or proper medical care and all of this. So of course, as the Baha'i community is always trying to help and be of service to the community, they thought that this is not right that these Afghanis are not able to get proper education. So this woman, with some other Baha'i young people, decided to help the Afghani kids. I am making the story short. So after the while, when the authorities found out that they are helping with the Afghanis, they were actually called in and they were questioned that why they are doing it, a number of questions, you know, long interrogation and all of that. And then they told her that they probably would call her and give her a sentence means how many years she has to go to prison. So when I met her, she was not called into the prison yet, so she was free, but she knew that her freedom is not permanent. So I met them and she said since then she got married and her husband actually was complaining and saying that, you know, uh, she had this little suitcase in our bedroom and it's ready for her to go. Like when the authority call her, she's ready to go to prison and he was complaining to me and saying that I tell her, please take the suitcase out of the bedroom because it makes me feel really sad that the suitcase is there. And she would tell me, no, I want this suitcase in the bedroom to be reminded that my freedom is not permanent. So I have to see it before I go to bed and it should be the first thing I see in the morning. So she was saying, you know, we got married, I want to become pregnant and have a child, 
But every time I think about that, I'm fearful that if I get pregnant and then they call me and I have to serve a sentence in prison, I don't want to be pregnant and I don't want to have a baby if in case they call me. So like their whole life is on hold because she doesn't know her future is so uncertain. And the only crime she committed according to them, of course, she was just teaching the Afghani kids how to read and write. But they arrested her because they called that she's a spy for Israel, for America, all of corruption with Islam, lots of different things that they connect to most Baha'is who are in Iran and in prison to give validity to why they are in prison or why they put them in prison. So have you noticed either talking to your friends that have come and gone over the years or your own visit there, a change of environment in regards to the Baha'is being able to live as a community? Yes, actually, as a matter of fact, I saw this this time when I went, because I was just in Iran about a month ago. My mom fell and she had surgery and I went to Iran and unfortunately when I came back, my mom passed away unfortunately two weeks ago. So when I went back to Iran this last time, I could feel the fact that people, most people were not satisfied with whatever is going on in Iran. And you know, believe it or not, <laughs> when I am in Iran and I talk in Persian, I guess I have accent. And when I'm here and I talk in English, I'm, of course I have a very thick accent talking in English. So that was the reason when I would go shopping or Wherever I went, people picked up that I have accent and they would say, oh, what is your accent? And I usually tell my story that I had to leave Iran in 79, you know, they burned my home and I belong to a minority religion and they usually ask, oh, if you are a Baha'i and most of the time they have high respect for the Baha'is. They would tell you that, oh, you guys are such a respectable people, trustworthy, we trust you more than even our own people. They go on and on and on, and then they complain about the government, about what is going on, about the cleric, and you can feel this undertone of not finding people not happy and satisfied with what is going on in Iran right now. And I think some of it we can contribute to the fact that many of them deal with the same kind of discrimination sometimes and they realizing now that, okay, when it happened to the Baha'is and the government said they are spies and they are doing this or they are doing that, they felt, oh, maybe it is true. But now that it is happening to them and they are labeled with same kind of thing that they are spies, they are this or that, they are realizing that this government doesn't matter 
who you are if they think that you are not thinking at the same level as they do, then you are a spy and you are against the government or whatever. So because they are suffering the same treatment now, they are realizing that this is not right because they are suffering. And in this sense, they have something in common with the Baha'is. And I think that's what you see more often in Iran now, that people actually voicing their dissatisfaction of what's going on in Iran. Parivash, you had said when you were young, in 79, you weren't able to go to university. Is that still the case today for young people in Iran? That's right. It is still the case. It's really very hard to imagine that the younger generation, the Baha'is who are young and they are at the university level age that they can go to university, they are prevented from entering the university. And, you know, it was so sad to see that with so much enthusiasm, they go, these Baha'i young Baha'is go sit for exam, take the entrance exam, they pay the money, and they are fully aware that they would not be able to go to university, but they go and take the exam. And in many cases, they get the highest grade, highest a score in the entrance exam. But regardless, because they are Baha'i, they are prevented from entering the university. So, of course, the Baha'i community, since the education is compulsory in Baha'i faith, and there is no excuse for anybody not to have education, they have created their own university, which they call B. IHE, Baha'i Institute for Higher Learning, and even then the government have confiscated their computer, their lab, instrument, their books, and even they put many of the administrators of this university in prison. So really it is very sad to see that the Baha'is in Iran don't have the right to education. And even when they get their degrees in these universities, it is not recognized by the government. So they go for four years or whatever, how many years after graduation, they cannot find employment unless there are people who are willing to give them job. So I don't know if you heard about Mazior Bahari, one of the Muslim reporters, who is uh, in Canadian, actually Iranian, but Canadian citizen. When he was in prison in Iran, I guess he was uh, in contact with some of the Baha'is who were in prison. So when he was freed from prison, he made a documentary called To Light a Candle, which is a documentary actually about the treatment of the Baha'is in Iran, about the underground Baha'i University in Iran, which really is inspiring documentary. And I think people can Google it or get it from YouTube, which is really interesting documentary talking about this situation of the Baha'is in Iran. The title of the documentary is To Light a Candle? By Mazior Bahari.
Yeah, and actually this Mother Bahari, the reporter, I guess there was a famous uh, film uh, called Rosewater, which is about the life story of Mother Bahari. When he was in prison, I, I think it is that story of his life. So this is the guy who put together the documentary. Parivash, there are still a number of Baha'is in prison. Can you tell me what the status is there? Yeah, so it's still, you know, there are more than 80 Baha'is in prison. And just in recent months, there is a lot of different, uh, you know, discrimination happening in cities like Yav, Semnon. Just two weeks ago, I think, if I'm not mistaken, they attack a Baha'i individual at their home. They killed him in Yazd. And then there are a number of Baha'is being expelled from the city in Semnon. About 80 families. There a lot of things we hear nowadays again that the discrimination is increasing. The persecution of the Baha'is are increasing in Iran these past few weeks. Many people contributed to the fact that it is their, uh, the Muslim holy month and, you know, usually during this month of fasting or in the month that they have holidays, the significant Muslim holidays, the persecution of the Baha'i community is really increased. It seems that they feel during those times it's beneficial or they go to heaven. I don't know what is the reasoning, but the discrimination is increasing usually during their holy months and during the Muslim holy observances. So the Baha'is in Iran are dealing with a lot these past few weeks because of that. So do you have hope for your country of birth? Oh, of course, we always have hope, and especially because in Baha'i writing, we are assured that although Iran might go through a lot of up and down and rough time, but the future of Iran is bright, and definitely there would be a time in the history, in the future, that Iran would arise to be a country that is praiseworthy, of course, now we look at it and we say, oh, my God, that future is maybe impossible to come by. In the writing of the Baha'i faith, there are references to the brightness of the future of Iran. I'm sure that it would happen. Well, Parivash, I want to thank you for sharing your perspective on the situation of the Baha'is in Iran. Thank you very much. Oh, you're very welcome. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Parivash Rouhani an Iranian Baha'i that left Iran in 1979 and is now presenting to communities the current situation of the Baha'is after returning after 30 years. You can find this interview and other interviews at abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.